0: So, first time I came here was two years ago, and I gave anybody here for that time. What did I talk about? (laughs) 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 So I, pure Pure land Buddhism, and uh, I said I wasn't using notes because uh, when you use notes you tend to look down and you lose contact with your audience. And I said, I don't know if you remember this. I said that the most important thing that we have contact. The talk is secondary, yeah. So the most important thing is we're sangha and we're here, we are together. And in a way, we don't really need this talk. Um, the fact that we've meditated together and we're having tea together and we're all here together—that's enough, really. Now the talk is a bonus. Uh, so the talk is called "Pain and Suffering," and uh, it must have been last November, I think, when Ariyaka asked me for. Titles of everything I'm doing for these 12 days and blurbs, as we call them, texts, a little bit of information about each thing. So I, was, oh, what can I? so I had to think of things. So um, I thought I'm giving two talks, so it has to be a sort of pair one thing one week and a similar thing the next week. So in the end, I came up with pain and pleasure. I thought that'd be an interesting thing to look at pain and pleasure because. Pain and pleasure are our most basic experiences. They're absolutely basic. In fact, they're so basic that you can't even define them. I don't know if you ever tried to define pain or pleasure. It's it's almost impossible, isn't it? They are just what they are. So uh, the Buddhist words, I'm sure most of you know the Buddhist words. The Buddhist word for i to say the Buddhist word. I mean the ancient Pali language that the Pali texts come up. In is dukkha and sukha. Right, nice, nice that isn't it? Dukkha and sukha. Dukkha is pain. Sukha is pleasure. And <coughs> there's another one. There were three, aren't there? And the other one is. aduka sukha <laughs> and aduka is not painful so not pa- painful and asuka is not pleasant so it's neither pleasant nor painful so those are the three feelings that we have and very often in english uh, aduka sukha is translated as neutral it's in between Um, And these three basic experiences are what in Buddhism, uh, I'm going to use another pen because that one's not very good, Uh, it's called Vedana, uh, which is sometimes translated as feeling and sometimes as sensation, Um, but it's basically what you feel and you're all feeling Vedana now, we all experience Vedana, we experience physical Vedana. Um, As you sit here, you might be uncomfortable, you might be comfortable, part of you might be uncomfortable, another part of you is comfortable, Um, you you might have have tense shoulders or tense back or you might have pain. One in seven adults in Europe suffer from chronic pain, so the chances are a few of you are in pain right now, physical pain. And then there's mental or mental come emotional, Uh, so that's... um, Vedana too, so it includes everything. And Vedana is the result of something that's happened before. It's either the result of something that you've done, or something that's been done to you, or just something that's happened that's nobody's fault. So uh, if you're feeling quite happy at the moment, it might be because you've... Created very skillful action in the past which is making you happy now. Or it might be that someone's been really nice to you, and it, it, so it's them that's made you happy. Or it might just be that spring is here at last, and we've had a lovely day, and you're feeling up about that. So no one's brought that about, that's the weather. And the same with that's Sukkha. It's, it's the same with Dukkha, you might be feeling really bad. It might be because of things that you've done in the past that have caused you to now feel bad. Or it might be that someone's been really horrible to you. Or it might be that you're coming down with a cold or the flu. Just when the spring comes, you get a cold. So, dukkha and sukha and adukkha sukha are the results of things that have happened previously. They're what you've got now and you can do nothing about it. Yeah? You can do nothing about your present Vedana. You can act now for future. So what you do now will affect you in the future. You can become happier. You can become healthier if you do certain things now for the future. But right now, you've got what you've got. You've probably got a mixture of dukkha and sukha. I would say. I I was doing a beginner's class a few weeks ago and we were doing... Dukkha and Sukkha. And uh, I asked everyone, there weren't many of us there, so I asked everyone to report in on their present state of Dukkha and Sukkha. And everyone was experiencing Dukkha at the time. Everyone. And that wasn't just old people like me who are getting a bit, my back's hurting and so on. Quite young people as well. And it was both physical and mental. They also were experiencing Sukkha as well. But it was a very interesting... to do just to ask everyone where do you stand with dukkha and sukha at the moment and it made me realise there was quite a lot of pain in the room quite a lot of suffering unnoticed a lot of the time and unsaid unspoken suffering Um, which is exactly really what the Buddha said the Buddha is famous for, well well known anyway maybe not famous for this but well known (laughs) Um, for talking about dukkha, isn't he? Um, He's really well known for that and it used to be, years ago in Britain anyway, in England um, some people thought the Buddha was a pessimist uh, that he was down he was down on pleasure because he said everything's suffering he didn't actually say everything's suffering but what he did say is that there is a lot of suffering that life is shot through, as it were, with suffering. Um, And then there's the Four Noble Truths. Uh, The Four Noble Truths are probably the most famous, or at least the most (laughs) well-known, of the Buddhist teachings, aren't they? The Four Noble Truths. Everyone knows the Four Noble Truths. So what are they? First Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of... It's suffering, isn't it? First noble truth. The most famous of the Buddha's teachings. And the first thing he says is, there is... Don't take my word for it. Here's the Buddha. Now this monks, he was speaking to monks at the time, is the noble truth of suffering. So, now, he sometimes really went into things in great detail, and he did here. Birth is suffering, ageing is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, lamentation, that's an interesting English word, isn't it? Do you know what lamentation means? (laughs) It's sort of, oh, lamentation, with lament, what is it to lament? Glug. Glug. Lamentation, pain, distress and despair are suffering. Association with the unloved is suffering. Separation from the loved is suffering. We know that. Not getting what you want is suffering. Now he doesn't say it here, but I've heard it in other places. um, Getting what you don't want is suffering. And then a modern Buddhist teacher with a bit of humour added another one to this which is getting what you want and then realising you didn't want it after all <laughs> is suffering. That happens doesn't it? That should be here because mm-hmm. you strive and strive and strive for something and then you get there, you get it and you think oh what am I doing here? I really don't want this. So he was very very particular and we know all these things already. In a way, we don't need the Buddha to tell us this. We know all about this kind of suffering because we experience it. We've all experienced probably every one of those things. We haven't experienced our own death, of course, but we've experienced other people's deaths. That's the suffering because who knows if death in itself is suffering, but the death of others causes us to suffer. So that's a lot of suffering to consider but then there's the second noble truth. What's the second noble truth? The origin of suffering. Yeah, the origin. And what is the origin of suffering? Grief. No. Craving. Yeah, tanha. Uh, tanha means thirst. Wanting, wanting, wanting causes suffering. Now, I'm, I'm going to say quite a lot about this but we'll come back to it in a minute. And then the third noble truth is the complete cessation of suffering, no suffering at all, which is enlightenment. Then the fourth noble truth is the path leading from where we are, suffering, to enlightenment, which is not suffering. So um, I never teach the four noble truths. And there's a definite reason for that. It's because... The second noble truth is highly problematical. In fact, I, you know, I've never ever read a Buddhist book or heard a Buddhist teacher say what I'm just about to say. But it seems completely obvious to me. And when I do say it, when I'm at the, in England in a Buddhist gathering and I say it, people always argue against me. But it seems to me to be completely unarguable. Not all suffering is caused by craving, is it? Not all suffering is caused by craving. But that seems to be what the Buddha says. The origin of suffering is craving. And what is suffering? Birth is suffering. Ageing is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are suffering. Are these things caused by craving? You could argue for it, People always argue for that. People (laughs) always argue, (laughs) yeah. So how does craving cause ageing? Cause what? Ageing. We get old. We get old. Doesn't cause the the ageing. It's of. I mean, that we... Yeah. It's because we, 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 need, we try to reject the aging process. Okay, but that's not what the Buddha said. You could say, and this is, this is always the argument that people say, that, <laughs> ah, but you see, uh, we don't want to get old and we don't want to die and we don't want to suffer pain. And it's our not wanting these things which is the craving. But that still doesn't cause the old age, the death, and the pain. So I would say the second noble truth is not true. (laughs) Not true. Not in every I argue a bit as well. Go on then. (laughs) What about if you crave for a human uh, existence? You crave for a a human form. Of course now we are expanding the uh perspective. Okay, you've preempted you've preempted me. Okay. (laughs) So the only way the second noble truth makes any sense is if you believe in rebirth the only way it can make sense. That's why I never teach the Four Noble Truths to beginners, because they're highly problematical if you don't believe in rebirth. And many Westerners don't believe in rebirth. And we're in a very interesting phase, I think, where Westerners are taking up Buddhism, but most, well, many, anyway, Westerners cannot believe in rebirth. So perhaps we're going to have a form of Buddhism in the West where we don't believe in rebirth. And that leaves the Four Noble Truths in a very difficult position because they don't make sense if you don't believe in rebirth. I just don't get it. No, I'm going going to explain. I have to assume rebirth in order to. to I haven't explained yet, but I'm going to. I'm going to. Okay, so the origin of suffering is craving, and it says the craving that makes further becoming. Further becoming. What that means is more rebirth. Craving causes rebirth. How does that happen? Well, what happens is we like this life. Yeah? We like the sunshine. We like eating food. We like, or some people like, um, as we get older, we don't like it so much, but sex. Some people like sex. Um, we like things. We like falling in love. We like art and music. We like all these things, so we want to keep having them. We want to keep experiencing, re-experiencing. And it's that craving for re-experiencing everything, all the good things, all the sukkah actually. This is what we want, we want more of this. So we come back to have more of it. Unfortunately, we come back for this and we get that too. You don't seem to be able to get this without having that get both. So that's the answer that um, we want this life, we want a physical body and physical body comes with problems, big problems as you know. Problems of pain and illness and ageing and eventually death. So I just wanted to get that out of the way first because I think the Four Noble Truths can be very problematic for people. Uh, Trying to understand how A loved one has got cancer and they're going to die. And the Buddha seems to be saying that's their craving that's caused that. But it's not directly. It's not directly craving that causes that kind of suffering. Of course, we do suffer a lot because of our craving. Craving in itself is a state of dukkha. When we're craving, we're in a state of dukkha. We don't always notice that, but we are. And then, of course, we don't always get what we want, and that causes another round of dukkha. Um, So, yes, of course, quite a lot of our suffering is caused by craving, but not all of it directly, but only indirectly. It's brought you back here, and being here, somebody said that uh, rebirth is like a package holiday that you, you get the sunshine and the sea, but you also get the noisy neighbours and the drunks and everything. You get the whole lot. So you have to have the lot in a package. So it's a bit like when you come back to this world, you have to take the whole lot. You have to accept everything. The sunshine and the beauty and the love, but also all the difficulties that come with it. So, let's look a bit more at dukkha. Something I've done recently, I looked it up on uh, Wikipedia. I know you can't always trust Wikipedia, but they uh, they do seem, to, in this bit of the page, they were referring back to scholars, so I'm assuming this is correct. Dukkha comes, Dukkha comes from the, uh, the word duska, apparently, which means uneasy. I like that. Uneasy. Uh, or it could come from a word... Duster, which means unsteady and disquieted. I've heard it said that... Um, uh, Dusta comes from the word mean to stand uneasily. You can't... You know, sometimes you're standing you haven't quite got it right. And you have to get into a better position. You're sort of a bit like this. To stand uneasily. You're not quite balanced. So... Uh, is a whole load of English words, translations of the word dukkha. Suffering, pain, unsatisfactoriness, sorrow, affliction, anxiety, dissatisfaction, discomfort, anguish, stress, misery, frustration. All these words are included with dukkha. So dukkha and sukkha are very interesting because they've got very, very wide meanings. Very wide meanings. Um, In fact, I'm just trying to think whether there are any other words that mean pain and pleasure. Because Sukha, for instance, doesn't just mean pleasure, it means happiness as well. And Dukkha means all kinds of unpleasant Vedana. It means everything from excruciating physical pain or the pain of loss, the loss of a loved one, right through to a very slight feeling of, hmm, I haven't quite got enough. I don't quite feel I've got enough here. What's in the fridge? That kind of, that's caused by dukkha. That, that feeling of slight lack is, mm, that is dukkha too. So everything, it's a very, very wide ranging term. Now, here's a nice little thing that I found. Uh, The ancient Aryans who brought the Sanskrit language to India were nomadics. They they were nomads. And they were horse and cattle breeding people. And they travelled in horse-drawn vehicles or oxen-drawn vehicles. So they used wheels. And su is a positive prefix, which means good. And duh. Is a negative, meaning bad. And then there's ka, K-H-A, KHA. And uh, ka means sky or space. And it originally came from the hole in the wheel. Yeah, you've got a wheel, you've got a hole in there to put the axle through. And that's ka in the middle there. It's space, sky. And um, so the way Sukha and Dukha came from this is that when that's a nice round hole, you get a nice ride. So it's a sukkah ride. Suh, good ride. When it's a bit misshapen, you're bumping along, and it's a Dukha. <laughs> it's a Dukha ride. It's really nice, that, isn't it? I love these kind of things. We could go on for ages about that, but this isn't really what I need to talk about this evening. Um, So, Dukkha. Luckily for us, the Buddha had other things to say about Dukkha. And the next uh, thing I'm going to talk about is quite a well-known text. Uh, It's a sutta, uh, which means a discourse, of the Buddha. And it's called the Salata sutta it's, I think it's a very important sutta actually, so I'll spell it just in case you want to look it up salata, and salata is an arrow or a dart some of you may know this one already but it's a very very good sutta what the Buddha says is um, everyone experiences dukkha, sukha and adukkha, sukha everyone so he, people that he calls untaught worldlings, pathaginas, people who are, are not wise, they haven't really been taught the Dharma, they experienced Dukkha, sukha, and Adukkha Sukkha. But also wise people experience that too. Enlightened beings experience Dukkha sukha, and Adukkha sukha. Everyone experiences it, it's common to everyone whether you're wise, whether you're enlightened or whether you're completely ignorant. And then everything in between. We all experience that. But there's a difference, there is a difference between the wise person and the unwise person in how they respond to their dukkha. So this sutta is about dukkha. So he says when an untaught worldling, when an unwise person is touched by a painful, Physical feeling, he worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast. Do you have that? Beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught, upset. Okay, so when what the Buddha is saying is if, assuming that you're an untaught, worldly person, I'm sure you're not, but um, I am, and so uh. When I experience pain, that's more or less what happens. I don't just get the pain. I don't want the pain. And so I get upset that I've got the pain. Oh, why has this happened to me? That kind of feeling. He grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he weeps and is distraught. Now, there's a famous scientist in, uh, from Britain called... Um oh, I can't remember his name. it will come back to me later. But he spent his whole life researching into pain. And uh, in a book called Pain, The Science of Suffering, he said that pain never comes on its own. Pain never comes on its own. It comes with, and I think I'm quoting him here, it comes with a whole mass of human misery. So just think about that, that when you're, let's say you're running to get the bus or something and you trip over the curb and you fall over onto the hard ground and you've really hurt your leg and you find it really hard to get up. Your leg's hurting, but there's also an emotional thing happening, isn't there? You're now worrying about your future. I can't get up. What does this mean? So meaning has, uh, pain has meaning. So immediately you're thinking, what if I can't get up? Is there anyone around to help me? And even if there is and they help me get up, will I then be able to go to where I have to go? I have to go somewhere. And will I be able to work? Etc. Etc. You get everything. M- human misery comes with suffering. So what the Buddha says is, it's as if this man were pierced by an arrow or a dart. But then they don't just have the first dart, Another one comes almost immediately after the first one. Bang! And they're hit by two darts, two arrows. The first one is the actual arrow. And the second one is their emotional response to that first arrow. And that's the difference between an unwise person and a wise person because a wise person only gets hit by one arrow. When a wise person is in some kind of pain, they don't then get really upset about it. They just accept it. Oh, that really hurts. And that's it. That's all they've got. They've got the physical pain. But we, again making a big assumption here, we experience two pains. The physical pain and the emotional pain that goes with it. So then, uh, the Buddha went in to the emotional pain that goes with physical pain. He's very good in this way, the Buddha. He really goes into things. Having been touched by that painful feeling... He resists, and this translation says, and resents it. Is that resent? Is that a word you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He resists and resents it. In another translation it says, he resists and becomes obsessed, which I think is better actually. So basically your emotional response to the pain is one of resistance. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this. And that causes extra suffering. And a lot of our suffering is caused by our resistance to simple dukkha. Dukkha is happening a lot of the time. And we don't want it, obviously. What we want is sukkha. This is what we're aiming for, isn't it? We want sukkha, loads and loads of it. But we don't seem to be able to get rid of dukkha. And when we do have dukkha, we resist it. Now, and that's a very interesting process that happens. We resist our own suffering. Because when you resist your own suffering, you cause yourself more suffering. Let's see if there's anything else. OK, so then what the Buddha says, we'll come back to the resistance later. Then what the Buddha says is, when you're suffering, what you next do, apart from resisting the suffering, is you start looking around for something to enjoy. You start looking around for some kind of pleasure that will outweigh the pain. So then you start craving. You start craving after things. So you've got this pain and you're trying to push it away that way. And on that way, you're trying to bring pleasure towards you. So you've got this kind of movement. And that is a difficult place to be. There's a lot more, he says, but I think we'll leave it there. Um... Let's go back to the resistance. We resist our own pain. What is that resistance? How does it manifest itself? And I think this is where I might... I'll say a few words about it. Uh, hmm. The resistance is a hardening. Do you know that in yourself? You know when you go into your interior life, when you meditate, let's say. We've just done the metta bhavana. And you you have an experience of your inner life. And it has a feeling tone to it, doesn't it? And metta has a soft feeling tone to it. It's soft and soothing and warm. Resistance... Is a hardening. You know how you can resist another person? Yeah? You resist another person's communication. You don't really want to communicate to that person. You know how that feels inside? There's a kind of hardening and <clears> that, like that. Well, this is what we do to ourselves, to our own suffering. We resist, we harden against. We try to push it away and we try to avoid it. And pretend it's not happening. Now you all know what happens when you pre- when you try to pretend something not's happening, when it actually is happening. Yeah. You become obsessed by that thing. There's a phrase in English: "What one resists, persists." Yeah. What one resists isn't that true? That uh, let's say let's say we're at a party. And there was someone in, in the crowd who I was trying to avoid. I'm sure you've been in that situation. You're <laughs> at a party and think, oh, no, not him. Uh. So what do you do? You turn round, don't you? You see them coming, you turn around immediately. Oh, now what am I going to do? So then you start talking to someone. Ah, and get into animated conversations. So it would be rude for them to come over and talk to you. But you can't keep that up for very long. So then you look round and they're still there, so you (laughs) go over there. I bet you've done this, haven't you? And you can spend a lot of time doing that. And are you enjoying yourself? (laughs) You're not. You're not enjoying yourself. You're trying to enjoy yourself. Oh, how are you? But All the time you're thinking of that person who you don't want to meet. (laughs) So you've gone to this party and you have a thoroughly rotten time. Why bother? What would be a better thing to do? They've come in, you think, oh no. I think, oh, I could just go and say hello to them. Just go and say hello, shake their hand. Hello, how are you? Nice to see you. Yeah. Anyway, I've. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know,
0: at least you said hello. You've acknowledged their presence. And now you don't have to keep avoiding them because they're not going to come and say hello to you again now. <laughs> you said hello to them. So, but this is, this is what we do our own suffering, yeah? We don't want to face it. I remember when I was, um... It's maybe one or two years ago now... ...and I had to go from Manchester... ...to a place right out in the countryside... ...to a bank, the co-op bank... ...who were doing a well-being day. And I was going to go and do meditation for people. So I had to go to the station... ...railway station and get a train. And... I um, was there early in the morning so there's a lot of people around, lots of people and this particular um, platform um, I'll tell you now just in case you go to Manchester and Piccadilly Station it's platform 13 and 14 <laughs> <laughs> it's hell it's the only platform where trains go through, right through and mm. it's just one after another train goes, phew, another train comes shh, one, one, one and the TV screen is one train and then another and then another Anyways, anyway, half past eight in the morning, and I got on a train that said where I'm going on the TV screen. And we, I was sitting on the train for about half an hour, feeling more and more uneasy, uneasy, duster, dukkha, as time was going on. And uh, the reason I was uneasy, because the train I was getting should have been a local train, stopping every now and then. And this one was flashing through the countries, <laughs> really, really fast, for about half an hour, and I thought... I must be on the wrong train. I'm, uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I looked at the TV screen. I'm not on the wrong train. This is the right train. But more and more I was becoming. And I noticed that I simply didn't want to ask the guard <laughs> if I was on the right train. It had to be the right train. <laughs> Eventually I had to ask him because we were really going a long, long way. And no, I'm on the wrong train. We're going to Glasgow. And so then <laughs> I had to get off in Lancaster. And then. Uh, I phoned up the co-op bank to say, look, I've got on the wrong train. I'm in Lancaster. And I'd found out it's going to take me a long time to get to this place from there. I had to get a train to somewhere and then another train somewhere else. And it would take me about two hours. And I was hoping he'd say, oh, well, forget it. But he didn't. <laughs> he said, oh, no, please come, please come. So, said, oh, I did another two hours on trains. And I got to this place called Wigan and... Uh, there are two railway stations in Wigan. I got off at one, I had to walk across town to the other. By then it was raining. There I was in Wigan, it was raining. I just missed another train. I went to a cafe opposite the station. It was one of those, in England, you get these what are called greasy cafes. Uh, and I got a white bread sandwich with grated cheese dry and a really, really strong cup of English tea. And they were playing Radio 1 on the radio. It was like hell. It was hell. <laughs> and I was still resisting what was happening. There was a part of me saying, no, this isn't really happening. This doesn't, this doesn't happen to me. I should be on the well-being day with croissants and brioche and salad and coffee. And I should, people should be listening to me. But here I am. No one's <laughs> listening to me leave. I've got Radio 1 going on. And I just noticed. Now, am making it... I, I know I'm playing this up, but there's something important here, which was I, I noticed suddenly that I was just not accepting the situation I was in. I realised that it was as if I had two lives going on at the same time. There was my actual life. There I was in Wigan, a, a greasy cafe with horrible tea. This has the life I should be having. This is where I should be. And I realise I live the whole of my life like this. This There's my ideal life, this is what should be happening, and this is what's actually happening. And I'm always resisting the actual real life that I'm having. And, of course, if you're resisting the actual life you're having, where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? So what we try to do... Let's say this is a pool, and this is another pool, and we're in this one. We try to jump into that one all the time, but this is actual where we're at. Well, that's where I was at, dukkha, and if I try to jump into that, I'm trying to get away from the dukkha, and that leaves me nowhere. I can't jump from there to there. It's not possible. So I do jump, but I jump into nowhere. And so what happens is you deny your own life. You resist your own actual life. And this, of course, is somewhat tragic, isn't it? That we don't accept our own actual life. So I came across a really good little um, kind of a poem in the Pali Canon. Uh, It was called The Guest House. Some of you may have heard a poem by Rumi called The Guest House, which I'll read in a minute. But I thought I'd read this first because this is very interesting. Because, monks, suppose there is a guest house. People come from the east, west, north and south and lodge there. And then he mentions the four the, the four castes in India katiyas, brahmins, vases and suddhas so we could say rich people poor people uh, solicitors, road sweepers shopkeepers all sorts of people come there so too various feelings arise in the body pleasant feelings arise painful feelings arise neither painful nor pleasant feelings arise Carnal pleasant feelings arise. That's uh, physical, bodily pleasant feelings arise. Physical painful feelings arise. Physical neither pleasant nor painful feelings arise. Um, Spiritual pleasant feelings arise. Painful spiritual feelings arise. Spiritual neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings arise. I think that's very nice, isn't it? That uh, we should try and see each other... Uh, see, uh, understand ourselves as a guest house and lots and lots of people come and stay here and so now i read the Rumi poem which is quite a popular poem in the FWO so I'm sure you've heard it on the outside has just found out that he can do double sided on his uh, printer <laughs> so he's doing loads of double sided <laughs> things at the moment he's really pleased about it Sukha. the guest house This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Now that isn't strictly a Buddhist poem because he talks about the dark thought, the malice, meet them at the door and invite them in. A Buddhist wouldn't say that. You wouldn't invite malice in. Because malice is not uh, Vedana. Malice is karma. It's what you do. It's something that you do. Um, dukkha and sukha are just pleasant, unpleasant. But it's it's a similar kind of idea. So um, how much time have we got? I need now to go on to the last part of my talk, which is to talk about my work with Breathworks. Because... Um, I run courses for people with chronic, long-term, physical pain and other long-term health conditions. So I just want to say a few words about that because we teach them more or less what I've told you this evening, although we don't put it in Buddhist terms. So um, we teach them about the two arrows, but we don't call it the two arrows and we don't refer to Buddhism, we call it primary and secondary suffering. Primary suffering is what we call the given. So for people coming along to a, a course, um, they've got some kind of physical problem which will not go away. And they, by the time they come to us, they've tried everything. Usually they've had their condition for many, many years, and they've been from one doctor to another. They've been to consultants. They might have had surgery. And then... After that, they tried all the complementary therapies. Acupuncture, homeopathy, osteopathy, aromatherapy, everything. They've tried everything. And when they come to us, uh, there's a a certain amount of um, work they've already done. They've accepted, to a certain extent, their condition. And uh, we say to them, before they even come, that this isn't a course to help you get rid of your pain. This is a course to help you live with your pain. And so they know that. And even though they know that, when we say it on the course, they find it difficult. It's a very difficult thing for them. And uh, on the first day of a course, we'll sit in a circle, 10, 12 people. And each one will say why they've come, and they'll describe their condition. And usually somebody cries, usually. At least one person cries. In fact, one, one day, uh there's a young woman with a problem with her shoulder and she began to tell us about the pain she was in and she began to cry, which was not a new thing. But she carried on crying. This is right at the beginning of a two-and-a-half-hour-long class and she carried on crying. And then other people were reporting in and she carried on crying. And then we began teaching and she carried on crying. Then we had a tea break and she cried all the way through the tea break. Then we came back up and we carried on and she cried right to the end of the class. Two and a half hours of crying. And she came back the next week and she thanked us. She said, that was so good. And why did she cry? Because we were the first people to listen to her. First, people to really listen. Of course, people have sort of listened, but to really, there was a group of people really listening. And what uh, often happens is that it's a very intense situation that first week because people are describing a lot of suffering. So you get like half an hour, maybe not that long, 20 minutes of suffering, and you realize that the room is full. Absolutely full of suffering. And then you move on. Uh, but one of the interesting things about our courses is there is a lot of laughter. We don't try to make people laugh. We don't come with jokes and things. But what happens is there's, a, there's another poem by uh, Mary Oliver that some of you may know called Wild Geese. And it begins, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles in the desert repenting. You just have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. There's a beautiful section about rain and trees and prairies and so on. Very, very lovely. But those first lines, I think, are very important. You do not have to be good and if you're not good you not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles in the desert with So what are you supposed to do? You just have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Now this is very difficult to do if you're in pain. Because where do you feel your pain you feel it in the body. So you don't actually want to go there. So when people come to us they've spent years trying to get away. They're doing exactly what the Buddha said which is they're resisting their pain and so what happens is (coughs) very often when people come they look very tired they they haven't got much colour in their face they quite often look a bit grey and pale they're tired pale and they look very unhappy and then as the course goes on they start to look happier. And in fact, over the weeks, you can see quite big changes in people. And it usually occurs in the eyes. Something happens with people's eyes. Probably, it's true to say, on the first week, their eyes are quite dull. And then on the third or the fourth week, usually, sometimes it's the fifth week. And if it, if it doesn't happen until the fifth week, I start getting worried I've been known to say at the end of the class on the fourth week to my team, it's not working. They're not getting it. But they always get it by the fifth week. And uh, there was one woman, a young woman, who um, had an accident. And she was in a lot of pain. And she was very angry about it because it was really affecting her life. She couldn't even work properly anymore. She was a single parent. She having a really, really <coughs> hard time with it. And she was angry. And uh, <clears throat> I think it's the fourth, it could be the third or fourth week, I can't remember. We ask people for homework to move towards their suffering. Because what they've been trying to do is get away from it. That's the way they've been trying to deal with it. And we say to them, does it work? And of course it doesn't work. It's like being at the party and you're trying to get away from that person. It doesn't work. They know that. So we say, OK, what we want you to do this week is move towards your suffering. And this gets mixed responses. And th- this particular woman got quite angry. And she said, it's OK for you, you spiritual people. You can do this, but I'm, I can't do this. So um, just listen. And... Anyway, she came next week. And uh, I noticed that as soon as she came into the room, she looked different. In fact, she was teasing somebody. She was laughing and teasing someone, and she looked different. And I said to her, you look different this week, and she said, yeah. I tried that thing, moving towards my pain, and it was okay. And it it made a big difference to her. So, last week, just just keeping an eye on the time here, last week I did the last of an eight-week course, the last week of an eight-week course in Wigan, back to Wigan. (laughs) Wigan seems to be calling me. <laughs> <laughs> I might as well just move there, I think. But uh, I've been running courses in Wigan. We've uh, we got some funding to run courses in Wigan uh, in a very, very deprived area, a very poor area. They've got a lot of money from Europe because it's such a poor area. And we've been running courses there. And this is my second course. And uh, the first <laughs> course I ran there was easily the best course I've ever run. Not because I did better than ever before, but because the people on it. They just lapped it up. They loved it. They loved it. And um, three or four of them wanted to carry on, so they're now supporting this next course. They're here, helping me on this next course. So we had the last week of the course. And so in the last week, we all report in, just like the first week reporting, the last week, everyone says what they got from the course. And usually there are tears. But this time, one, two, three four I think it was the second person started crying as she was saying how grateful she was for the course and that set the next person and the next person it was just this massive crying over that end of the room and uh, one of them and this is the woman who one of the women who came on the first course and at the end of that course she said something which I've heard many times now she said uh, I've got my life back got my life back And I'm going to say a bit about that in a moment. But this time, she said, I've got my life back. But it's more than that. My family have got me back. My family have got me back. And I thought, and that's when she started crying. She really started crying. And she was saying that um, she's very close to her brother. And her brother phones her every week. And uh, I can say her name because you'll never meet her, Cheryl. uh, She is in a lot of pain. Really a lot of pain. And every week her brother would ask her how she was and she wouldn't tell him. <coughs> but at the end of the course we talk about communication and, and uh, I always say, what do you say when somebody says, how are you? And you're in a lot of pain. You know, What do you say? This must be difficult, isn't it, if you're in pain all the time and somebody says, how are you? Do you say, well, actually, my neck is really, really hurting. It's like somebody's going like that and then down... You don't, do you? You just say, I'm fine, thanks. So uh, I said, and she said, I always say, I'm fine. And I said, why don't you experiment and say you're not fine? Why don't you say, I'm in a lot of pain, actually? So she did. Her brother phoned up, and he asked her how she was. And she said, and she told him exactly how she was. And he said, I am so glad you told me. I am so glad you told me. And then he told her that for the past few years, at the end of the phone call every week, he would be in tears. Why was he in tears? Because she wasn't telling him how she was, and he knew. He knew. But she was keeping something back from him. What was she keeping back from him? She was keeping herself back from him. And he found that very, very painful. So she got her life back, but all her loved ones got her back too. I think this is really uh, important because it's, again, this whole whole thing of you don't want the dukkha, you don't want to be there, so you try to get out of it. The first thing you do is you try to get away from your own body. That doesn't work. But in doing that, you're getting away from everything. What kind of life are you living if you're not really in your body? When you try to not have the pain... When you try to harden, resist. When you resist the pain, you resist everything. You resist everything, and um, the man who started this kind of work, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, he said that uh, what we're trying to bring about in people with pain is a profound transformation of view. A profound transformation of view a new and profound coming to terms with our problems and our sufferings. It's a perceptual shift away from fragmentation and isolation to wholeness and connectedness. And sometimes that's very dramatic, sometimes it happens. One person, the third week very unhappy, drawn, tired, fed up, miserable. Next week they come back and you can see immediately as soon as they come in, there's been a change. You can see it in their eyes. Something has happened. What has happened? There's been a shift. There's been a shift. And they're in exactly the same situation. They've got exactly the same amount of pain. They're unable to work. They can't play with their children. They're on low income. Everything is the same, except inside themselves has changed. There's been a change from resistance to acceptance. And this is really, really big. Um, I think I'll read you another poem. Because, of course, they're not just dealing with pain they're dealing with profound loss as well can you imagine Uh, the kind of loss that people experience um, it's the loss of health but then usually with that comes the loss of the ability to play with children sometimes the loss of relationship that young woman who cried all the way through that first class after the course she had an operation and she got her shoulder fixed sometime after that her partner left her she couldn't stand it any longer very very difficult for a partner to live with that kind of thing so there's a lot of loss and I've lost (laughs) (laughs) a poem where are you yeah here we are here we are okay two poems can you stand this the Well of Grief by David White. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the Well of Grief, turning downwards through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins. Thrown by those who wished for something else. So as well as dealing with the pain, people have to deal with their own sense of loss. And of course we don't want that either. So um, we should finish now. I think we're supposed to finish at nine, aren't we? Yeah. So finish with this poem. This is a really just quite wonderful poem. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him Alive before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So just to finish sometimes It's easy to get the impression that Buddhism is all about trying to get away from dukkha into sukkha. But that doesn't work. What we're trying to do is find freedom, a sense of inner freedom within dukkha and sukkha. And when we do that, do you need to go? You can... Um, When we do that, when we face our own suffering... When we turn and move towards that which we do not want, then we find something else. We don't get what we want. It's the Rolling Stones, isn't it? You can't always get what you want. But you can try sometime. (laughs) You just might find. You get something else. What you get is not pleasure, maybe not even happiness, but a deep sense of wisdom which is, in itself, a deep sense of kindness. So when people come along and they want us to get rid of their suffering, we can't do that. We can't do that. What we can do is say, move towards it. Be with it. Soften around it. Treat it like a child who's just fallen over and gashed their knee on the pavement. What do you do? You pick them up. You hold them. Knee still hurts, but somehow it's held within a sense of care and love.